0: Lexus of Lexington. Home of the best-selling Lexus IS. Find yours today at lexusoflexington.com. Introducing the redesigned catholicsingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember CatholicSingles.com for faith, fellowship, and love.
1: Welcome to the Dignity of Women, where we dig deep into the vocation and dignity of women in the church, in modern times, and as an answer to the call for a new evangelization. I'm your host, Kimberly Cook. Joining me today is Fiorella Nash. Fiorella is a writer and bioethicist in the United Kingdom with over 10 years experience researching life issues from a feminist perspective she speaks often at international conferences and has appeared on radio and in print discussing abortion, gender side, maternal health, and commercial surrogacy. She is also an award-winning novelist and has published numerous books under the pen name Fiorella de Maria, including Poor, Banished Children, Do No Harm, and Will Never Tell Them. Thank you so much for joining us today, Fiorella great pleasure. And I wanted to start by asking you about your recently released book, The Abolition of Women, How Radical Feminism is Betraying Women. This certainly hits many polarizing topics. And because, of course, language is so important, why did you decide to title it The Abolition of Women?
2: Um, well, I called it The Abolition of Woman because it's, an, it's a nod to C.S. Lewis, The Abolition of Man, um, with which you, you may also be familiar. Um, so I'm sorry, I was linking it back to um, another work. But how radical feminism is portraying women, it's a pretty uh, controversial way of uh, titling a book, but it really captures the very controversial themes that I know are in the book, but which I felt really had to be explored. So so it it does touch a polarizing set of topics and it may also be quite a polarizing book, but my hope is that it may help to reopen the debate just a little bit to help find some sort of common ground.
1: Right. And I think when we hear the word abolition, our first uh, thought is slavery, thinking of slavery. And in many ways, um, you show how some of these Issues of abortion, gender side, um, select sex, selective abortions, and you know, um, surrogacy industry are in some ways fringing on slavery.
2: Absolutely, and sometimes pro-life campaigners are referred to as the new abolitionists, which I find very interesting because, like slavery in the past, I think um, that. The sanctity of life and the protection of life is the great social justice campaign of our age and there certainly are many similarities which i do look at in the book particularly when we look at for example commercial surrogacy and the enslavement of the female body that goes on there with the full approval of many western nations and the way in which we portray the unborn as unworthy of life so I think it's it's also true to say that we tend to forget when we look at the slave trade in the past that many people condoned it and many were involved with it, and the people who were actually fighting it were regarded as, at the best, naive; um, at worst, traitors. Um, a little bit um, well. I suppose more than naive, attempting to destabilise their own society, um, and we forget that now. When we, it's so widely understood that slavery is such a terrible evil, but whenever you're fighting a very great social evil, um, at whatever age you're living, you will always be the minority, and you will always be demonised. But you are still speaking the truth, and you still have to speak it with courage. And I I get a great deal of inspiration
1: from um, those who fought for abolish slavery. Right. And let's establish the meaning of the word feminist, which you admit has often been characterized by anti-religion, anti-marriage, anti-nihilist, pro-choice, and hostile to many other values. How is feminism different from human rights?
2: Well, I feel that... In many ways, women's rights are human rights. It's part of the same struggle, the struggle for equality, to ensure that um, all human beings are protected. But I do also feel that there are issues that specifically affect women and are particularly detrimental to women and girls, which we need to address. For example, sex-selective abortion, forced marriage, Um, trafficking, all of these issues are particularly detrimental to women, which is why I think we can't just talk more broadly about human rights and the need for equality. We have to talk specifically about women's rights.
1: Right. Yes, I know that that is a topic that many people get confused about. And we had even talked about it a bit before and talking about how John Paul II named um, feminism in his call for a new feminism that does usher in life. And of course, again, when we think about feminism today in modern times, we do think about these many anti-moral beliefs, such as religion, marriage, and the right to life. And it's unfortunate that feminism has come to be synonymous with those issues And um, in our modern times, that that is what our daughters will grow up thinking when they hear the term feminist, for better or for worse.
2: Yes, and I can see why some people feel we should just abandon the term feminism altogether, that it's become so debased, that it's become so associated with, well, many, many ideas that simply are absolutely anathema, not only to millions of women, but are very separate from what the early feminists would have understood by the term. However, I'm not prepared to surrender the term feminism. I feel it's important that we try to get the message across We're all feminists. We're all in favor of the protection and empowerment of women. We want our girls to be educated. We want them to have a chance to have careers. Um, We we want them to be protected from violence. But feminism was never supposed to be about destroying human life to get there. It It should never have been the case that we need to sacrifice the lives of our own offspring in order to gain equality.
1: Right. That's what
2: feminism was supposed to be about.
1: (laughs) Yes, that's a terrible trade off, an awful trade off. And that's, of course, why I think many are willing to abandon the name if that is the current trade off, you know, not wanting to be associated. But then you make a good point as well on not wanting to abandoned but wanting to change usher in the new feminism and you wrote about your first encounters with feminism at school and how you found it somewhere between victimhood and thuggery with doses of racism and neocolonialism you said whilst feminism in some parts of the world Or Sorry, while women in some parts of the world were struggling with the specter of horror killings and child marriage, female members of staff railed against any use of the word man in the liturgy and talked about men as though they had nothing better to do than concoct wicked plots against female emancipation. Tell me how your views have expanded since then.
2: Uh, yes, well I think that, that particular experience is common to an awful lot of women my age. Um I was referring to the sort of the sort of women I came across uh having a female education. Um and I felt that that's still the same negative the vacillation between self pity and thuggery really continued all the time I was at university. On the one hand, women were constantly being portrayed as victims, and yet as soon as a woman said, "You know, I don't think I agree with abortion," all the claws would come out, and suddenly, you know, it would be a bloodbath. Um, but I came to understand I was um, it really for me a big. Turning point was being sent a book about pro life feminism. I'd never even heard of it um, all that time. And someone sent me a book which just had a note saying pro life feminism does exist. Mm. And there it was a collection of essays. And that got me thinking, you know, there has got to be some way forward here because I was also aware that the rights I enjoy uh, on a daily basis had been hard won, that I had rights that my own grandmothers didn't have, and my great-grandmothers certainly didn't have, and that this was important. And, you know, whenever I heard a feminist saying, we don't want to go back to the bad old days, I thought, well, no, we don't. Right. What has abortion to do with this? You know, we you know, all the complaints you have about the patriarchy, about the subjugation of women, you are applying to unborn children you are saying that there are some members of the human family not only who do not have equality, whose lives don't matter, but they don't matter at all. That we have the right to kill them. Right. So when was that? When was that a decent way to behave? When was that a just way to behave? Um, and so, really, the, the book is—it's it, the consolidation of many years of thinking about the different areas where I feel feminism is failing women, but also looking at the idea of moving forward to a form of feminism that is completely supportive of women, but also supportive of life.
1: Right. And that again is something that I think your book boldly takes on. And I think a lot of people struggle to take that on head to head. Um, we know that the women's right to choose has become a central point in feminist dogma in modern day. Women not supportive of abortion are labeled anti-women women and not on the side of their own sex. The feminists for life have been called anti-feminists and frauds. Um, you cited that Pennsylvania Representative Babette Josephs asked if a female co-sponsors of the state ultrasound bill were actually men with breasts, quote unquote, where is the intellectual freedom of a movement unable to dissent or disagree with evolving principles?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's, for me, that has been a very, very major sticking point. And I feel it is one of the ways in which radical feminism has completely lost the plot. That there is just this incredibly insulting notion that 50% of the world's population think the same way. Mm-hmm. To think the same way. And that it's impossible to oppose abortion unless you've been brainwashed into it or threatened into it. Um, There was one particular quote I found, I I say funny, but it's not funny just because of the the ignorance it portrays, talking about the difference between um, rational discussion and blind obedience to faith. Mm. If you if you agree with abortion, then it's, it's completely rational and you know, you've thought about it. If you oppose it, then you're just you know, blind obedience to faith. You haven't thought about the issues at all. Now, how can we patronize women like this? Millions of women around the world oppose abortion. Right. Slightly more women than men oppose abortion. If you look at surveys, if you actually break it down and look at those who oppose abortion, it is much more likely that a woman will oppose abortion than a man interestingly. Right. Um, And yet, at the same time, we we go by this assumption that a woman who does not accept abortion has something wrong with her. Yes. And it's, it's terribly, it's very insulting and incredibly ignorant.
1: And you, you even cite in your book, um, Champions of Abortion, such as the director of a UK abortion provider, Anne Ferretti, who states that the issue is not whether it's a human life, but rather, when does human life really begin to matter? And perhaps that's the underlying motivation and driving force of your work, because that really goes beyond humanitarian cause when you say when does a human life begin to matter? Then you've really crossed a severe boundary.
2: Yeah. it's a huge moral boundary to cross when you get to that point. And I feel it's been one of the most dangerous and frightening changes. But I have witnessed even in the years that I've been involved in pro-life advocacy because there was a time... And this was certainly true when abortion was being debated. The idea of legalizing abortion was debated in the 60s here in Britain, and it was probably similar in the States. When the arguments were always, it's not really alive, it's just a bundle of cells. Mm-hmm. It's not human, it's nothing to worry about, it's not a human life. But of course, because of all the developments in science, in medicine, with ultrasound in particular, and we're learning more and more about the unborn child, about the humanity of the unborn child, it's becoming very difficult to say that because all the evidence keeps reminding us that we're talking about a human life. Mm. And rather than saying, okay, we've got to change our thinking here, there's, there's no way of getting around the fact that we are ending human life, all we're getting instead is it doesn't matter if we do. Right. Or even we have a right to end life.
1: Yes, I think that's it. We have the right. Yeah. Mm hmm
2: Yeah. I mean, that's a a very different position morally, in my opinion, to say we have a right to kill and I will kill and it's okay for me to do that than to say I'm not killing. Right. You know, you can put put the other position down to a certain level of ignorance, even willful ignorance. Right. But when you get to the point where you're saying we will kill to get what we want, what on, earth, what on earth are we talking about? How can we talk about human rights in the same breath as making a statement like that? Exactly.
1: Where can we go on the discussion of human rights when that's the base of the movement? Um, and you make such yeah. a compelling point. On the distinction of language and how the abortion industry reinforces misogynist stereotypes. For instance, in your book, you said the notion that the unborn should be treated alternately as a baby or as a mass of tissue dependent entirely upon whether or not the pregnancy is wanted. May be intended as a way of supporting a woman's bodily autonomy, but this unscientific shifting of language unwittingly reinforces a misogynist stereotype of women as shallow and childish whose whims and fancies need to be humored regardless of the facts. She wants an abortion? Therefore, let us call it a fetus to spare her feelings. She wants the baby? Well, let's call it a baby then. She'll like that. No organism can be radically altered by desire alone. I found that to stick out to me as very powerful.
2: Thank you. I mean, for me, that is almost that particular section really sums up a lot of my feelings about where the, the debate has gone wrong. Um, I come from uh, an English literature background. That was my area of study when I was you know, at university. So I'm very interested in language. and mm-hmm. um, I'm very interested in the way language is used, the way it's misused in order to try to persuade. And for me, that glaring shifting of language is so damning Because it does assume that women are frankly quite childish. It panders to a stereotype. How can it be a baby? How can it then be a fetus? I've I've got four children. Mm -hmm. And during none of my pregnancies did anyone ever use any word other than baby. Whoever it was, the nurse, the midwife, the doctor, my friends, you know, People trying to sell me things, sell me baby grows, push chairs, whatever it was. Everyone uses the word baby without any prompting. Right. Because that's what it is. There's no reason to call it anything else. As soon as you mention the abortion debate, you only ever use the word fetus. Or, or the pregnancy, or the pregnancy tissue, or this, this whole long string of euphemisms we, we use now in the debate. But nobody ever talks about the fetus,
0: or the mm-hmm. cells
2: within a normal pregnancy, within a happy pregnancy, and it's something we all experience as parents. So I, I felt it was something that I could never really, I could never really reconcile. So if you really believe in women, if you believe in women, giving women full information, you give them all the information. You right. don't try to deny the seriousness of what they're doing. Um, and it, it goes beyond even the the language of the debate. If you look at the literature, I right, have a bit of an exploration in the book of the literature that abortion facilities put out. They never mention the reality of what they're doing in that process at all. Right. You know, they speak. You know, they they talk in the most euphemistic terms about the removing of tissue and all the rest. And I think, you know, how different would it be if you really believe that abortion should be rare? If you really believe that women should have full consent, full knowledge. What would it be like if you actually produced materials which told the woman exactly what happened?
1: Right. Yeah. That's How certainly... That, that would certainly take down on revenue, I'm sure.
2: Yeah, you know, um, I mean, undoubtedly, you know, if you just, if you actually went ahead, um, one parallel that I think is very interesting, I didn't have time to go into it um, in any detail in the book, Was if you look at campaigns against smoking, I don't know in the US whether this is quite so much of a public health issue, Whether you have a lot of campaigns to try to stop people smoking?
1: Well, you is, know, that something that's- there are still some, but it does seem like um, not... many people smoke anymore, honestly. I mean, because smoking has been prohibited in so many public areas, and because I believe they did so many good campaign efforts in the past maybe 10 years, it does seem like this generation is almost even unaware that so many people used to smoke only a generation ago.
2: Yeah, it's the same in Britain. There's been a huge shift over a cor- the course of a generation. When I was a child, it was still perfectly normal for adults to smoke in front of children. Mm-hmm. Um, it was still a fairly... So, oh yeah, I mean, I remember going you know, going to school and the, the driver of the taxi smoking all the way to school with, with a load of children in the back, and nobody thought anything different of it. Mm-hmm. If you went to school think, thinking of cigarette smoke, <laughs> nobody battered an eyelid. You know? And that would be unthinkable now. Um, and as you say, the number of people smoking has gone right down because they did very heart-hitting campaigns. The message of the campaigns, you know, the, the idea was that we want to reduce the number of smoking. It's a terrible public health problem. Remember, we have a national health service here. It costs the NHS millions and millions every year in you know, lung diseases and all the rest. So they had these very heart-hitting campaigns to try to stop people smoking, in which they told smokers, very clearly very graphically what happens when you smoke a cigarette and I think that has been one of the biggest successes in fact in public health just putting that message across can you imagine if really society was um was serious about trying to end abortion right. and had campaigns like that you know where every everything you know, when you went into the clinic when they explained exactly what was going to happen what mm. sort of a difference would that make Right. But everything is geared towards making sure abortion happens and it happens very regularly.
1: And so speaking about that social responsibility and legal restrictions and the tactic of the self-fulfilling lie, even these tactics, which turn arguments away from morality, immediately claim things such as rape and back alley abortions as pragmatic approaches to problem solving by this logic. You point out that because rapists and wife beaters are rarely convicted and not likely to stop the act or the crime should be perhaps decriminalized. Obviously you're making a point on this. Explain the danger in removing morality and logic from social responsibility.
2: Well, I think the fact is morality plays a part in so many of our laws without us even being aware of it. You know, we talk about not imposing morality. Actually, we impose morality all the time. Like the morality of not killing somebody in a pub ball because you're annoyed with them. Like the morality of not beating your wife. The morality of not raping a woman, um, you know, late at night in an alleyway. Um, We... We, in fact, do have a very strong moral sense of the need to protect citizens from violence. We do expect a certain level of behaviour from the population. That is why we have law courts, that's why we have prisons, that's why we have community service and all, the other, all these other penal um, responses to breaking the law. And yet, when it comes to certain sacred subjects, we're not allowed to talk about morality anymore. But that's disingenuous. Right. We do it with
1: everything else. And um, moving into the fertility industry's denigration of women, which is interesting because I have not heard much discussion on this. So I found it very interesting that you went so deep and clearly into this in your book with a lot of research. And again, um, this is evident in language used. So you talk about how mother has gone from egg donor to now genetic contributor, pregnant woman from incubator to gestational carrier, Uh, uh. IVF and ART um, take out the term women all together. Um,
2: Um, It was noted by another academic, in fact, that IVF... um, does not mention the woman's body at all. Now, even with artificial reproductive technologies, the baby is in the woman's womb for most of the pregnancy, for almost all of it, in fact. Um, And yet the term IVF excludes the woman completely and almost talks as if a baby is sort of grown for nine months in a petri dish. Um, And it may seem like a small point, but with artificial reproductive technologies – the woman's body is disproportionately affected and burdened by those procedures. Um, whether she's the egg donor, whether she's the surrogate, whether she's um, having the, um, she's going through the procedures for her own benefit or for someone else, it is her health that is being risked, and. It's her emotional well-being, but is also being affected. Whereas the man's role is quite small. I won't go into graphic detail about what it involves. because um, <laughs> I don't know, know who will be listening, but um, I do mention it in the book. <laughs> Use your imagination. <laughs> um, but I don't think this is something that is really discussed enough. And I was horrified the more I went into this, particularly the subject of commercial surrogacy, which I think is a terrible scandal that really needs to be addressed actually how widespread it was and how serious the problems were and what a lack of longitudinal studies there were about the long-term effects on women's health of going through these procedures.
1: Yes, I I have to tell you... I have to tell you, I had not, um, before reading your book, I had not really thought much about the industry. You know, of course we're familiar with IVF and ART and, and women going out to seek these things. Oftentimes we think of it in our own culture in the, in, you know, wealthy Western world where you can spend any amount of money to get a child in these different ways, you know, if you're having trouble. But I... Have to say that I didn't really think much about the other side of things. And you state that the single biggest facilitator of female exploitation is poverty. And this includes maternal and infant death, gender side, among other consequences. And India has the highest surrogacy industry. And with one girl abor- aborted a minute in, Indis- in India, again, talking about gender side. Explain the greater health risks in developing countries and the pressure of gender side.
2: Oh, it's it's a huge area. Um, when it comes to gender side, it happens all over the world. Um, it happens in many countries and also within particular communities within certain countries which don't necessarily have a broader problem with gender side. India and China have a particular problem with this, and. It's relatively easy just looking at the, um, at the statistics to see where it's going on because it affects the birth rates so visibly. Um, if you have a noticeably skewed sex ratio at birth, you know that there has been gender side, you know sex selective abortion is happening and it happens for all sorts of reasons. Um, My feeling is that poverty is a major factor behind the suffering of women more generally in in all sorts of fields, commercial surrogacy, um, that is the temptation to become a surrogate for a fee, um, but also in terms of the actual status of women. Um, but it also affects things like maternal health and the provision of maternal health. I mean, it's, it's something that seeps into so many injustices, which disproportionately affect women. But with sex-selective abortion, what angers me the most is that, as you say, they, they estimate that one uh, baby girl is aborted every minute in India. And so many feminists in the West actually justify it. They will justify sex-selective abortion, or they will try to pretend it's not really happening. Um, It's incredibly dishonest, and you do get women's groups in developing countries who get very angry about this, and Mm -hmm. say, you know, why why do you not care about the fact that a significant proportion of the female population is not even being allowed to be born?
1: Now, how can that be justified? Yes, how can that be justified?
2: Yeah, I mean, my feeling is it's just that abortion has become such a sort of holy of holies within feminism that it is simply not permitted to question it on any ground, and it has to be defended. It's like a knee-jerk reaction. Whenever abortion comes up, it has to be defended. And so that does mean you get this ludicrous situation of feminists defending enforced population control in China, women having their fertility controlled and sabotaged and being forced to be aborted Mm -hmm. um, in the name of population control, but not being prepared in the West to condemn it because it involves abortion, or in the case of sex-selective abortion, knowing perfectly well there is something absolutely terrible about a baby girl being so unwanted, so undervalued, that it's regarded as perfectly reasonable to kill her. Right. And yet to defend that, because if you condemn sex-selective abortion, gosh, it might reopen the whole debate about whether abortion is ever justified.
1: Yes, I think that's a lot of the fear, is if there is any defense of this on any fronts, it could be a tumbling wall.
2: Mm. And yeah, it, it might, it might just, it might just open up the whole, it might open up the kind of world, God forbid, it might make people think. Right. It might make people think about, you know, actually, what are the broader problems here? And again, it um, comes
1: back to being equipped with the knowledge and being able to make your own decision. The fact that people are able to make their own decision, women are able to to be logical enough to receive the information, to reason through the information, and to make an informed decision that may or may not be on the same side as the popular political movement at the time. And, yes, um,
2: and it, it's brilliant, but beyond that, I think it's also... I think it opens up the question as well, I talk about this a little bit in the book, that the abortion industry very much postures as the champions of women's rights, mm-hmm. and almost behave as if we're very ungrateful when we turn around and say, no thanks, I'm perfectly capable of talking to myself, um, <laughs> there's almost a sense that we're being ungrateful children who should be a lot more a lot more happy about you know, being champions like this. Um, but it, it it opens up so many questions. Once you allow women to actually think for themselves about this and you accept the fact that women are perfectly capable of opposing abortion and opposing it very passionately and not being brainwashed and not being stupid, um, you open up all sorts of other questions about the whole legitimacy of the abortion industry and beyond it, the fertility industry and the whole understanding we seem to have developed about sexuality. It's a huge subject.
1: Yes. How do we approach loss, infertility and abortion with compassion? You speak on disenfranchised grief and the expressed sentiment that many women feel less of a woman for not being a mother.
2: I think that... Infertility and post-abortion trauma, um, they're, they're different, but I think they share the, the same sense of being um, not allowed, not permitted within society. Um, the grief tends to be secret. And infertility in particular affects many, many couples. I mean, I, I can't remember exactly what the figures are, but it's on the increase, particularly in women. and. I don't feel it's something that we really talk about enough. Um, I know a number of couples who have never been able to have children for all sorts of reasons who have spoken to me about how insensitive people are without intending to be, you know, making assumptions about them. Oh, I suppose you were too busy with your career to have children mm. or whatever. And, you know, and making assumptions about the choices they've made. And I think we, we need to be able to dis- reach out to couples in that in that situation. I say couples, not just women, because it affects men as well, you know, not being able to be a father. Right. And certainly I think we do have to be very sensitive. You know, when we're talking about, for example, the desire to have a child, it is a very, very powerful desire among women in particular. And we need to think about that. I would always... Um, I would always recommend to a couple who were in a position to do so to consider adoption. For example, I've known couples who have adopted, particularly from abroad, who have given a great deal of love and joy to a child or sometimes several children. And it's something we should be talking about a lot more. One of of the tragedies of the commercial surrogacy situation is that you've got Western couples going to countries like India Spending uh, spending money with clinics that exploit women from shanty towns into becoming surrogates. When there are twelve million orphans in India, right? You know th- th- all these all this energy is being spent to create babies in what are sometimes described as baby making factories by the people who run them. Right, and yet there are there are little ones who are desperate for homes, who are, are growing up alone. I just, I I feel somehow, you know, I know adoption is not always an answer for couples. Sometimes it is a question of coming to terms with a life without children. But I think it's certainly something we need to speak about and speak about a lot more compassionately.
1: And that advice is beautiful because I do think um, that judgment can get us in trouble on both sides, Um, judging somebody for having too many, too little, not adopting, adopting, you know, there, I think there does need to be a greater level of discussion and discussion with compassion that's open to hearing both sides. And then um, you even talk about a lot of the things that we are blind to turn a blind eye to, such as postpartum depression, and especially with these women who are surrogates, there's a lot of real lack of compassion on what happens to them after the separation, even though they're only carrying these children for the intended purpose of uh, separating after birth, um, and then maybe to do it all over again, many times and the long term psychological effects that this is having on women, and then if they're having any physical or mental ramifications from the birth of these children, we're just really turning a blind eye to that. Um, and a lot of these Westerners are seen as just coming in, scooping up the children and saying, thanks very much. Here's, here's the money and see you later, you know, and just leaving these women to fend for themselves.
2: I mean, I feel it's a form of, col- uh, of, of colonialism. I feel it's it's almost like a colonisation of the woman's body. Even the language that's used to describe it—you know, the Western couples being the benevolent masters, you know, giving money to these women, um, you know, to help them out—and then her producing their baby, and she's obviously supposed to be extremely grateful for the opportunity to carry someone else's baby for the nine months, and then. They give her some money, they take away her baby, and probably never have anything to do with her again. And what what is so unjust about that situation, I I don't deny that there would be couples who would try to stay in touch with the surrogate, who might try to um try to help her in some way, but they're not obliged to do so. And we don't even know what happens to these surrogates in many cases, because during the pregnancy, of course. The fertility clinics have a huge vested interest in looking after them because they're carrying a product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're going to look after them during their pregnancy. But once they're given birth, what actually happens to them? We don't know. How, how do they deal with postpartum depression? We don't know. What about the physical complications? We don't know because we don't care.
1: And as you pointed out, it's rather optimistic to think that they even have possession of all the money or any of the money that is paid to them
2: yes there's very little um there's very little done to ensure that they are actually financially protected many of them are cheated because they go through agents who you know who go touting um in poor areas um they're expected to negotiate their own fees in many cases and they is absolutely at a disadvantage when they're doing that, and some clinics insist that the money is put into a bank account in the woman's name, but there's no obligation legally to do that, and in many cases the money may well go straight to the husband and the woman will never even benefit from it, Right. and there's no way of knowing if they may even then be pressured over and over again to be surrogates to provide a steady stream of income for somebody else.
1: And Fiorella, I'd like to ask you one final question that I think really ties in a lot of your work and um, a lot of what you have researched and talked about. So to prohibit a woman from using her body any way she chooses is said to be a patriarchal trap to attack her liberty. However, fundamental human rights, which are inalienable and inviolable, you claim a necessary paradox of human rights is that an individual cannot be separated from his fundamental human rights, whether or not he chooses to be so. And I think that is something that we really struggle to wrap our minds around, that we cannot will ourselves to be separated from our fundamental human rights. Um, That is not something that, As a person, as a human being in the image and likeness of God, you cannot choose that. You cannot will that. So can you kind of wrap up all of your work in explaining that?
2: I think it is a much older principle then we always appreciate, of course, that quote about inalienable and inviolable rights. Um, I've taken from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but it's a it's a very old principle and it's a very important one because we forget, for example, that in Roman times you could sell yourself into slavery. And it it would actually possible to do that if you were in a lot of debt, for example. And the whole reason that we talk about inviolable inviolable and inalienable rights is because if we have a right to separate ourselves from our own fundamental rights, then others may have them taken from them. Mm -hmm. You, you you, you, You start a bad principle. And it's a very difficult one to understand until you look at how vulnerable human beings can become once human rights are up for discussion. Um, I have had people who favor abortion, who are in favor of abortion, say to me that rights are not absolute. But if you believe that, you can tear up the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and everyone is vulnerable to oppression at any time. Right. If we don't, I mean, if we don't accept that certain rights are absolutely fundamental, that they are inalienable, that they are inviolable, however we personally feel about it,
1: then we lay ourselves vulnerable to the most horrific of abuses. Yes. Well, I want to thank you. My guest today has been Fiorella Nash. She is the recent author of The Abolition of Women, How Radical Feminism is Betraying Women. You can find this published through Ignatius Press. And how else can people find your work, Fiorella?
2: Um, well, it's available uh, from Ignatius, but it's also available on Amazon, and you can probably order it from any bookstore.
1: Yes, I will definitely be reading more. I, As I told you, I read your book, How Radical Feminism is Betraying Women, and I loved it. And I will definitely be seeking out some more of your work. And thank you for all that you have done to advance pro-life work, um, pro-life feminism, and equality of human persons in general. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Breadbox Media. Find more about us at breadboxmedia.com.